The message is entitled, The Woman Mary. This is part two in our initial study of Mary. We saw the um, servant heart of Mary, seeing herself um, as a sinner like any other, a person privileged to be called and to be used of God. Uh, sometimes there's such a reverence uh, to Mary, particularly in the Catholic Church, that is idolatrous. And then as a backlash of that, Protestants just kind of trample her underfoot. She was a woman of privilege, but a sinner like all others, as we saw. And it's important to take a biblical perspective of her and not a religious one. Um, it consisted of three movements that marked the Annunciation there as we looked at Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 50. We saw Mary and Gabriel uh, reveal to us the communication. And then Mary and Elizabeth revealed to us the confirmation and Mary and God revealed to us the exaltation. And now we want to look at Mary in relationship to the incarnation, also marked by three movements. We're going to look at uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 39, and then we'll finish up with Matthew 2, 1 through um, 23. And so let me give you um, the three things to... Uh, hang your thoughts on here, the three movements. We're going to see first Mary and the proclamation of Caesar. And that will deal with Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 20. Then we'll look at Mary and the dedication of Jesus in Luke two twenty-one through 39. And we'll finish up with Mary and the visitation of the Magi's in chapter 2. And it follows all the way to verse Twenty-three that we'll finish up with. So let's begin here with Mary and the proclamation of Caesar. Our text again, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Notice uh, in the first five verses, Mary was um, to know that God was in control of uh, human affairs. This still bothers us. How is it that God could, don't worry about that. God is in control. He's not biting his nails. He's on the throne. But he doesn't force people to be robots. He doesn't force people to do good or evil. He just knows the good and the evil they'll do. To you and I, that's a problem. For him, no big deal. Notice in verse 1, the instrument of God for the um, census decree was Caesar Augustus who thought he was in control. His real name, um, Caesar, of Caesar was Cassius Octavius who came to be the emperor and the Roman Empire had been ruled by generals, but now by one man, which led to Caesar worship later on. Everybody had to burn a pinch of incense or say Caesar is Lord, and then you can go worship anything you want as long as you didn't try to overthrow Rome or challenge it. Well, the Christians couldn't do that. They couldn't burn that pinch of incense once a year and say Caesar is Lord. So many of them died once um, he came to power in the persecution. And the Roman Senate suggested different titles for him. One was dictator, but he said that was too temporary. King, he said, didn't signify enough. So they came up with Augustus from August, like the gods. The month of August is, uh, comes from that, okay, in the calendar. The census first took place, Notice, while Quirinius of Cyrenius was governor of Syria in verse 2 and 3, um, and everyone was um, ordered to go to their own city. 
The purpose was for taxation in the Roman Empire. Uh, critics tried to fault the uh, scriptures, but archaeological uh, evidence um, um, has found evidence after evidence. Um, B.C., uh, 6 A.D., um, confirmation of the census every 14 years in Egypt. So every time the critics try to find fault with the Bible, God gets some archaeologists, sends them out there to dig, and they come up with something to confirm the scriptures. But let me ask you a question as a Christian. What if God never had any archaeological evidence for what's in the scriptures? Would you believe the scriptures? Absolutely. That's important. Now, notice verse 4 and 5. The intent of God was to get Mary to Bethlehem. The angel of the Lord had already appeared to Joseph, as you know, regarding Mary's pregnancy and had resolved to obey God. The city of Bethlehem was in Judea, which means house of bread, verse 4 tells us there. And the prophet Micah, as you know, had prophesied about his birth in Bethlehem 700 years before a contemporary of Isaiah in Micah 5.2. So the very city he was to be born was prophesied. God promised his birth to be through David's line. Way back to the promise of David in 2 Samuel 7.12-16. through 16. Paul picks it up in Romans 1.3 and many other passages. After the seed of David... The wife of Joseph in verse 5, Mary, was in her ninth month. This was God's plan, not Augustus. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord like the rivers of waters. He turns it wherever he wishes, Proverbs 21, 1 tells us. Do you think God is stirring up the leaders of the world today? Do you think he speaks to them? Do you think he turns them? Of course he does. Never against their will. God knows the end from the beginning again. He did it to Nebuchadnezzar. He did it to Cyrus. He's in charge again today. Now notice verse 6 and 7. Mary was to know that God was in control of the birth of his son. The delivery day of Mary was completed Right on time, verse 6 tells us, God told Isaiah that a virgin would bear a son and should call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. In Isaiah 7, 14, um, we've already seen that Matthew 1, 23 confirms this in fulfillment of. Paul the Apostle declared that when the fullness of time had come, God sent for the son made of a woman under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law. Galatians 4, 4. Right on time, when the fullness of time, Kairos, a very specific time. The son to be born is named Jesus, called the son of the highest, the holy one, the son of God. Luke 131, 32, and 35. Emmanuel means God with us, the incarnation. Now notice verse 7, the delivery was to be under difficult circumstances. There was uh, no room found in the inn for Mary and the delivery was in a common courtyard enclosed by walls and water in the center for the animals. Some of you have gone to Israel with us and we've showed you such locations and such um, uh, typical places like that. The delivery was 
in this common courtyard, and Mary gave birth alone to her firstborn and wrapped him in swaddling cloth, it says, with a long bandage like a string diagonally off the corner, and then you wrap the baby so you tie him in so the blanket doesn't open up. The phrase is found two times in the New Testament, here in verse 7 and in verse 12. Now notice Mary laid him in a manger, which was a stone-feeding trough for the animals. When we were up in, the, uh, in Megiddo, we showed some of you a feeding trough. Um, Joseph was a masonry, a carpenter, but masonry. They don't make houses of wood over there. Stone. So he was placed in a feeding trough, not like our Christian mangers that have them with wood and hay and that. Um, It it was totally different. Um, Paul says Jesus became poor for us that we might be made rich in him in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. He emptied himself of his glory. He abdicated his throne and he took on the form of man and he humbled himself and took the form of a servant obedient unto death. Notice verse 8 and 9. Um, Mary was to know that God was in control to confirm the arrival of his son. This is revealed from 8 all the way to 20, but in 8 and 9, God proclaimed it to lowly shepherds through an angel. Probably the angel is no other than Gabriel, the angel of good news. He's always blabby. Um, Michael is the warrior of Israel. In verse 8, the shepherds most likely were temple shepherds caring for the sheep for the temple sacrifice. Um, The appearance of an angel made them afraid, as verse 9 tells us. And then in 10 and 11, God proclaimed that it was good tithings and joy to all people. They were not to fear. In verse 10, the proclamation was regarding the people of Israel, for the Greek has the article the people, referring to God's people, Israel. He came to his own, his own received them not. First he was sent to Israel. The promise was to the Jews, Israel. He came to die for the world, but he was sent to the Jew first. The promised person was the Messiah, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Verse 11 tells us the title Savior of the world was given to Jesus at Samaria by the Samaritan woman in John 4:42 not at Jerusalem not by the Jews they rejected Jesus as Messiah look at verse 12 through 16 God proclaimed the news in order that there be a response a proclamation is made for people to hear and to respond to it a sign was given to the shepherds the babe would be wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. Again, the stone trough there, verse 12. And the multitude of angels praised God, declaring peace on earth to men of goodwill regarding the proclamation of verse 13 and 14. The confirmation in 16 of the truth of the word of God was witnessed by the shepherds. Everything in the uh, one or two witnesses is to be established to witness. Verse 17 through 20, God proclaimed the message that it be proclaimed to others now. 
In 17, the shepherds made known the message of the gospel right away. In 18, the people who heard marveled at the message and had a decision to make. The women here, Mary kept all those things in her heart and pondered them as she trusted God. Remember, she's about 14 to 16 when the angel Gabriel comes to her. A very mature young woman. She could have rejected what God wanted to do. She says, be it according to your will. But she still is human and she is dealing and struggling with these things as they're happening. And in verse 20, the shepherds return Different men noticed and glorified God. And they praised him for all they had heard and seen. This is the proper response to the hearing of the good news of the gospel by lost man. When they see themselves as sinners, unable to merit salvation, those who in themselves are enemies of God, rebellious, and that God in his grace and his love sends his son to die for them that the way of redemption might be available to them. Grace, unmerited favor. There was a Catholic monk named Martin Luther, you might have heard of him, who equally found out how much God was in control of the powers that be as he stood to the Roman church regarding the pure proclamation of Christ which led to the Protestant Reformation and he nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, the gates. It's only God's grace that they didn't kill him. Justification by faith. He said this, and I'm quoting, Here I stand, my conscience holds captive to the scriptures. I can do no other. And he refused to recant by the grace of God. You and I need to um, constantly remind ourselves about who is in control of the world situation. If you remember Daniel in chapter 4, verse 34 through 35, after Nebuchadnezzar regained his sanity, he gave a witness that God was in heaven. He did as he will, and no one could say, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> and he gave glory to the God of if we could only see the hand of God in current affairs to accomplish his purposes, we would be amazed as those of the past perhaps even object as Habakkuk in chapter 1 where he complains against God. Why are you showing me all these things, God? Why? It's a heartache, you know? And he doesn't understand. You're, you, you know, show me what's going to happen. If I told you, you wouldn't believe it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell you. I believe you, Lord. Okay, I'm going to use the Babylonians to chasten the, the Israel. I can't believe it. I told you. Hmm. The clear proclamation regarding the Savior's birth begs me to respond if there is any room in my heart for Christ. Revelation 3.20 I stand at the door and knock. We use it for evangelism, but the context is really speaking to the Christian. The Christian church that has kicked Jesus out. The context is one of his seven churches. 
and he's knocking on the door. That door must be opened from within. Jesus doesn't knock the door down. He doesn't force himself upon anybody. Again, the context is to the believer, Revelation 3.20. We must not exclude ourselves from being used as Mary, being positioned to be aligned with God's plan. So we must be open. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, Ephesians 2.10 says. So every day we should wake up and say, Lord, what do you have for me today? Let me be open, guide me, direct me. And that you prepare my heart, because I don't know what God has in store for me that day. Each of us must understand the work of salvation is not always a bed of roses, but a time that there are difficulties, situations beyond our seeming control and circumstances, but always enabled us um, by God to trust him. Um, Paul the Apostle told the uh, Gentile Converts in Acts 14.22 that we must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10.13 And so the good the message is simple and can only be received in faith. Have you failed to respond? Maybe. Maybe you heard the gospel over and over again and you're undecided, you're straddling the fence, you like to hear the word, but you don't want to commit and uh, bow your knee to God. So John, you know, Pilate um, didn't mind talking to Jesus. Herod loved to hear John the Baptist, but he didn't commit completely, right? A lot of people go to church for different reasons. The good news is complete only when we have um, gone to proclaim um, the gospel uh, to people or people come to hear the gospel as ambassador, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Every one of us is an ambassador of Christ. And so Mary, in the proclamation of Caesar, reveals divine uh, transportation here. <laughs> he takes her there. This is God's doing. Notice, secondly, as we come to Luke 2, 21 through 39, we have Mary now and the dedication of Jesus. In verse 21, Mary obeyed the law, notice, and had Jesus circumcised. The circumcision of Jesus signifies incorporation into the national life of Israel. Otherwise, he would be cut off. Every child... And the eighth day would be circumcised. It's interesting, the eighth day is when the blood coagulates the best. And that's why the doctors now often wait. But because they don't want to wait and they get impatient, they give the little boy a little shot to do artificially what the body does naturally on the eighth day. Interesting. Fearfully and wonderfully made. The interesting thing is that uh, God is so scientifically aligned with true science and the laws of science. While he totally discards the hypothesis of man's evolutionary process and their speculation. 
Every scientific law is ordained by God and does not contradict the Bible. But the scientific hypothesis and opinions, they completely, they defy the very laws of science. Science 101, only what is observable and that can be duplicated in the lab is scientific. No one's ever observed evolution. It cannot be duplicated in the lab. Therefore, three little dots in a triangle. It's not science. Simple. But they strain it in that and they swallow a camel. Now, circumcision was symbolic of the flesh life of Jesus identifying himself with sinful man. Abraham was circumcised um, after his sin with Hagar as he produced an Ishmael in his life. You don't want Ishmaels in your life. And so he gave him the covenant of circumcision, cutting away the flesh life, your self-will, that which brings trouble to you. And so Jesus was made sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Every person born um, um, must be born again and through the filling of the Spirit of God we must reckon ourselves dead and live and walk in the Spirit so as not to fulfill the desires of the flesh. Notice in verse 22 through 24, Mary obeyed the law and presented Jesus to God in the days of her purification. All of this is in fulfillment of the law and the prophecies. In verse 22, according to the law of Moses at Jerusalem, the ritual and details are clear in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 2 through 8. According to the law, the firstborn belonged to the Lord, verse 23. Due to their deliverance from Egypt, back in Exodus 13.2, they were to be the priests of the home, Numbers 18.15-16. They were redeemed later by God by taking the Levites in their place and taking the uh, census of the, of the two and the difference they gave money to redeem the remainder of them. In Numbers chapter 3, verse 11-13. through 13. Now, Notice in verse 24, according to the law of poverty, um, the two turtle doves uh, or young pigeons were the offering of poverty. So Mary um, came from poverty. She didn't offer lamb. She offered the offering of poverty. The specific for a male was 40 days, seven for uncleanness, plus 33 days. The specific for a female was 80 days, 14 for uncleanness, plus 66 days. So there was different amounts, whether you had a little girl or a little boy. The offering was two turtle doves or pigeons, one for sin and the other for the burn offering, dedication and consecration, totally consumed on the altar. Um, and this is what she is doing here in fulfillment of the law. When you get to 25 down to 38, Mary obeyed and heard the fulfillment of the law by two witnesses here. In 25 to 35, the testimony of Simeon uh, is given to us. Um, in 25, Simon or Simeon here is called 
a just man, righteous towards man and the vow, righteous towards God, waiting for the consolation of Israel, the hope of the Messiah, and the Holy Spirit came upon him. Simon was told by the Holy Spirit in 26 that he would not die before he saw the Messiah, the Lord. This was prophecy being fulfilled at the very time. In 27 through 30, Simeon came into the temple by the Spirit, and when the babe Jesus was handed to him, he took him and blessed God, confessing that he was seen the promised Messiah, and could depart now in peace. Amazing. In 31 and 32, Simeon then declared that God had prepared a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of his people, Israel. So even though he has sent to his own first the Jews, the long-term He's going to go to the Gentiles, Jew and Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. 33 through 35, Simeon addresses himself now to Joseph and Mary. In 33, the response of Joseph and Mary was that of marveling at these things spoken. The amazing things. In 34, the blessing was pronounced to Joseph and Mary. The confirmation of God's revelation to Mary was declared to her. That this, in fact, was the fulfillment of the promise at the end of 34 and 35. Notice that. The child was destined for the fall, the stumbling and rising, the salvation of many in Israel. The blessing was salvation. The sorrow, the rejection of the very gift of God. The child was destined for a sign which would be spoken against, verse 34 says. First by the Jews, the leaders, scribes, the Pharisees, and the people. The sword would pierce through the soul of Mary in verse 35 that the thoughts of many, uh, 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 many hearts might be revealed. You can only imagine this young woman, um, again, 14 to 16. And um, she knows that this baby of hers is destined for uh, a very grim future, death. And so she loves her baby, and yet... At the same time, God is in control. There's a purpose beyond her understanding completely. And she must have had a very heavy heart. Again, she was reminded of the living sacrifice she would be called to throughout her life, culminating in the cross. Verse 36 through 39, we have the testimony of Anna now. Anna was a prophetess, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher, a widow seven years after being married, verse 36 tells us. And Anna was 84 years old and did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day, 37 tells us. 
a devoted woman, a godly woman, a woman of, uh, of faith and trust in God and the word of God, the promises, the prophecies. In 38, Anna came in at the instant Simeon was prophesying to Mary and confirmed the prophecy to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Mark that well. God's Spirit falls upon Simeon, and then God's Spirit affirms it through her, Anna. The law required all things to be attested by two or three witnesses in Deuteronomy 19.15. Remember, when this is happening, there is no New Testament. All they have is the Old Testament scriptures, okay? In 39, Mary... Joseph and Jesus, having performed all according to the law, now return to Galilee. You know, we are to be a living sacrifice to God. The only problem with the living sacrifice is that it, um, uh, they keep trying to crawl off the altar. <laughs> uh, we're to be committed to the altar, a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice. God wants to use your life. Someone is reported to have asked a concert violinist in New York's Carnegie Hall how she became so skilled. She said it was by planned neglect. She planned to neglect everything that was not related to her goal. Wow, what a great principle for us as Christians to stay on that altar. Hmm. As Mary submitted Jesus to the right of circumcision, each of us should submit ourselves to the circumcision not made with hands in the spirit of the heart, trusting God to do for us what we cannot do ourselves, as Romans 2.29, Philippians 3.3 says. It's that submission to the baptism of the spirit, to walk in the spirit, to deny the old man, to... Obey the Lord. As Mary obeyed the law, so we obey the word of God in order that his, uh, to be his instruments of honor and for his glory that he might guide us from day to day as part of his plan. Once again, the conclusion of the, uh, the treaties of Romans is from chapter 1 and chapter 12, 1 and 2, he comes to the conclusion, Therefore I beseech you, I beg you by the mercy of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And be not fashioned to this world system, and be transformed, metamorphosed, by the renewing of your mind to prove what is that good, acceptable, and the perfect will of God. That's what God desires of you and I every day, and I have to... Uh, like the violinist, neglect everything that is not relegated to that goal. They would try to deviate me, obstruct me, hinder me. As Mary saw God's confirmation, so will we as we walk with God in our call, for he is faithful to always confirm his word and work in us and through us by the Spirit and by his people, the two go together. He makes this clear to the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians 5.21 and 
1 John 4, 1, we are to test the spirits and we are to know the truth by the spirit. Very, very clear. So Mary and the dedication um, of Jesus, she reveals divine consecration. This is the God-man. Notice thirdly, as we come to chapter 2 of Matthew, it's our last text here, we have Mary and the visitation of the Magi. Um, Matthew alone records this account. The other Gospels do not. Again, um, the Gospels are not in contradiction to each other, but they're complements of each other. In verse 1 through 3, Notice the wise men came to Jerusalem asking the whereabouts of the king of the Jews. They came after Jesus was born, verse 1 tells us, in Bethlehem in the days of Herod. He is said to be king, a title he constantly sought after through Rome and obtained it, but never recognized as king by the Jews. He was Herod the Great, the son of uh, Antipater, an Idumean. Idumeans were those of Esau, not a Jew. Type of the flesh. And reigned 37 years in Judea. Jesus was born in the last year of his reign. Notice they came from the east, verse 1 tells us, a journey of probably 700 to 1,000 miles. Now, for you and I to travel 700 to 1,000 miles in a car is not that difficult, and a plane is nothing. But we're talking about those days on camels and horses and buggies. No freeways, uh, rough terrain. Um believe that they came from Midia or Persia, a modern-day um, Iran. And the phrase wise men, magos, it's a word in Spanish for magician. Some have traced the root to an Iranian word meaning great and at times identified with soothsaying, divination, and astrology. They had seen his star, notice in verse 2. And being guided, they came to worship him. Not any star, his star. Nothing but his star, the king of the Jews. You remember Balaam in Numbers twenty-four seventeen had prophesied about the star to arise as well as Daniel and the minor prophets. Again, God declared the prophecies of his son to come, the time, the place, who he was, his character, his origin, everything. Look at verse 3. They caused Herod to be troubled in all Jerusalem with him. The word um, trouble means to be agitated or perplexed. He had no room for a rival to eclipse him or be sought after, let alone remove him from his throne, being self-centered. That's the flesh, always. 
He, Herod the Great, was a complete madman, paranoid of losing his throne. So he killed many of his own wives and children. He imprisoned a group of individuals to be executed the minute he died to ensure that there would be someone grieving at his death. <laughs> that is how hated he was. Of course, when he died, they just let the people go. It's crazy. They used to have a saying that it's safer to be um, uh, Herod's pig than his son because there's such a correlation between the two. They almost sound the same <laughs> as the wordplay. Look at verse 4 through 6. Herod went to um, the religious leaders and asked the whereabouts of the Messiah. In verse 4, the priests and scribes were the lawyers to interpret and scribes to record the scriptures. These are the scholars. They had biblical knowledge and information. They were more concerned with knowing than doing. Nothing has changed. Yeah, Fuller Seminary down the street is more concerned with knowledge and knowledge that really contradicts the Bible than really studying the Bible. Very liberal. They do not believe in the inspiration of Scripture, the inerrancy or the infallibility of Scripture. Nor do the majority of Christian churches today. They believe there's errors in the Scripture. Amazing. They so often are under the influence and power of the liberals, the German mind that infiltrated the neo-Orthodox here from Germany. The same here, the power of Herod. And the people of that day that were empowered to influence. They're very careful to be politically correct in what they say. Nothing has changed, has it? Objective truth is a, a very strange thing that's accepted today in our society. Everything's very subjective. If you make an objective, absolute judgment, you're a bigot, sexist, racist, xenophobic, and all the rest of their little words. President Obama taught us that we don't lie. We just misspeak. New vocabulary for the new army. They don't care about objective truth. Don't confuse the issues with the facts, they would say. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. They have a very um, secure position and are looked up to as the um, reputable authorities having an appearance of spirituality here. Notice that. The priests and scribes possess accurate biblical truth and told Herod Bethlehem of Judea according to the prophets in verse 5. Take note of that. Bethlehem means house of bread located about five to six miles south of Jerusalem, and they spoke with theological language. They expressed their experiences uh, with God, but often are contrary to the Scripture. So when people tell you about their experiences with God, 
you have to judge that to the scriptures. If what they say contradicts the scriptures, they're not experiencing God. The plumb line is the scriptures, ladies and gentlemen. Never apologize for the plumb line. And by the way, the plumb line is never crooked. We are. We're the crooked ones. They boast in their academic accomplishments to affirm their spiritual qualifications. They do not live with the people. These would describe the Pharisees. They desire recognition by the people, though. Look at verse 6. The priests and scribes spoke about the scriptures without real concern for the person of the scriptures. In verse 6. The text is from Micah 5.2. The revelation was twofold. The privilege of Bethlehem, the person was to be a ruler. The position was to shepherd the people of God, the Jews. Herod wanted to make sure he remained on the throne. They had no anticipation of the Messiah's coming. The Magi's come. These guys are clueless and they have the scriptures. Wow. They had no excitement of life about the Messiah or the fact that he might be present. They had no desire to be ruled or guided by the Messiah. Look at 7 through 12. Herod called for the wise men to seek the Messiah for him. In verse 7, he secretly called the wise men and he determined, meaning to learn carefully from them the time of the star's appearance. In verse 7 there, the word determined means to learn carefully. We get it in verse 13 through 18, the account there. In verse 8, he covered up his motive and true intent to kill the Messiah. He was using godly men to accomplish his evil desire to locate the Messiah by his false pretense and deceptive words. Nothing new, is it? The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. He was selling himself to them by his fraudulent Hypocritical words saying he wanted to worship the Messiah rather than to destroy him, as we'll see in verse 13 and 14, 16 through 18. Hmm. In verse 9, they were led by the star. And it sat, it stood over the location of the Messiah there in verse 9. The star was not some constellation, as some say, Saturn, Jupiter, or Halley's Comet. It's not what it says. The star was a divine light that stood over where the child was. Very clear. In 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy at the finding of the Messiah. Do you rejoice that you have found the Messiah? As he has saved you, forgiven you, given you a divine nature, 
promise to never leave you, to forsake you, to give you wisdom as you depend on him for your life, for your marriage, for your children, for life. They sought a person, not a system, a philosophy. Very important. In 11, they entered the house. True to their intent and worship, they prostrated themselves before the Christ child. The place was a house, notice, not a cave or an outdoor enclosure. Nor was the Christ child a newborn in a manger when they arrived. Time has passed. The mother of Jesus was present, Mary. I am sure the Magi's were amazed at God's way, but they did not worship her. Never. It's the Messiah who's to be worshipped. The husband of Mary is not mentioned, Joseph, but when Jesus was 12, he is mentioned again for the last time. Notice still in 11, they gave of the best they had. They came with treasures, verse 11 tells us. They presented gifts to him. They gave him gold, which is symbolic of deity and his office of king. They gave him frankincense, symbolic of his priestly and sacrificial service, imported from Arabia near Saba and Shalor. It was both rare and very, very costly. And they gave him myrrh, symbolic of his office of prophet who was to die, which was used for embalming. These um, frankincense and myrrh are very medicinal. They are known to reduce tumors today and everything. The pure myrrh and frankincense. Though much of the pharmaceutical companies reject a lot of this because it takes money away from them. <laughs> but they can't take it because they cannot patent plant and regular medicine that comes uh, from nature. It's amazing. Now, notice in 12, they were divinely warned in a dream to not return to Herod and were obedient to their Messiah once they found him, revealing the faithfulness of God and revealing the loyalty of the wise men. They're being led one step at a time, just like you and I. But I think back when I was born again in 1973, I had no idea what God had for my life. But I took one day at a time, one step at a time, and he unfolded my life before me. Not in my wildest dream could I ever imagine what God had in store. They departed, notice, to their own country another way, revealing their dependency on God alone and revealing their trust in God's way. In 13 through 18, Mary and the child were protected by God. Don't miss this, 13 through 18. God warned Joseph in a dream to flee to Egypt by the angel of the Lord in 13. He was to take Mary and Jesus. He was to stay there till God brought word to him. 
And he was to know that Herod sought the young child's life to destroy him. Like Abimelech, Jacob, Joseph, Pharaoh, Solomon, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, Pilate's wife. All kinds of warnings that are given through scripture as God intervenes. Joseph's obedience was prompt in verse 14. Egypt, about 200 miles away, there was a large settlement of Jews there. God was fulfilling the Old Testament scripture. Look at verse 15. Herod, seen, he had been deceived by the wise men, then sought to slay all the infants in its district in verse 16. Two passages are inferred, Numbers 24, 8 and Hosea 11, 1. Herod was a proud and insecure man about the person and throne that he held. He says himself as one uh, mocked or trifle with that is the meaning of the word deceived. Herod in his exceedingly angry state decreed that all the infants from two years old, mark it well, and under were to be put to death. It is amazing what men and women will do to obtain and maintain power. The atrocities that have been committed through human history. It's amazing. Herod decided the time from the inquiry of the wise men. They had traveled. And in 17 and 18, Herod was also fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. The chapter speaks of the downfall of the nation of Israel going captive to Babylon and finally delivered in Jeremiah 31, 15. They would go by way of Rachel's tomb as captives and she would mourn them from her burial in Genesis thirty-five nineteen, Rama is about five to six miles north of Jerusalem. God called Joseph to return then to Israel by the angel of the Lord from nineteen to twenty-one. The angel told Joseph that Herod was dead and he was to return with the child and his mother in 19 and 20. The return was prompted by another warning and was guided to Galilee in 21 and 22. No confusion. God is just rerouting him. The son of Herod was ruling over Judea and he became afraid. Archelaus was like his father, brutal. He killed 3,000 on his ascension to the throne. The guidance once again fulfill Old Testament scripture. Look at 23. Jesus came to dwell at Nazareth, 80 miles north of Jerusalem. Jesus was to be called a Nazarene. There is no specific prophet given and believed to be a summation of many references, prophets, also minor prophets. The root is branch or shoot 
that we find in Isaiah 11.1 1 and Jeremiah 33.15. This is the fourth prophecy fulfilled here. Billy Graham, the late Billy Graham, in his book Angels, Angels, tells of these missionaries who were surrounded by a fierce African tribe one night and knowing they were going to be killed, they began to pray fervently. At, as time transpired, they looked out and everyone was gone. Years later, the chief of the same tribe was converted and the missionaries asked him, why did they not attack that night? And he said that there were giants around the house with swords drawn. Oh, I wonder how often we are protected by God in ways that we are so ignorant of. <laughs> His grace. Shakespeare said, I commend my soul into the hands of God, my creator, hoping and assuredly believing, though the merits of Jesus Christ, my Savior, to be made partaker of life everlasting. The only safe place is our commitment to Jesus. We have to be so careful that we do not lose heart due to the difficulties that God allows and brings to us to align us with his will and his purposes, ladies and gentlemen. Paul the Apostle puts it this way, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, underline that, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Wow. We have to know God so that when he speaks to us, we can obey and be guided by him. Psalm 27, 23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord Yahweh, and he delights in his ways. How we have to be so careful to not fall into the deceptive plans of others and be part of destroying God's work. It happens. People start submitting themselves to God and then they take hold of their life. And then they bring difficulties, even destruction. They want to blame God and God has nothing to do with it. It's our own doing. But yet they want to blame God. Acts 17, 11 says, These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. That's what you and I are to do every time we listen to somebody teach or preach. If you are not taking notes on me and if you don't go home and do my homework on me, then you're revealing that you're a candidate for deception. Simple. The plumb lies the word of God. 
God is sufficient to care for the saint and his church adequately. We need not fear. Jesus said to Peter. And in this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. The fact that he is the son of God. The living Christ. That's what we put our trust in. Not on the pastor. Not on the elders. Not in the denomination. Not in the movement. But the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. There we are safe. There we will find his perfect will. And so Mary. And the visitation of the Magi reveals. To us, divine protection. Wow. Mary's relationship to the incarnation, the threefold movement, how informative it is for us, and how important for our own life's application. Mary, in the proclamation of Caesar, was divine transportation. Mary and the dedication of Jesus was divine consecration. And Mary and the visitation of the Magi's was divine protection. Man. It, it just prepares our heart for the things he has. He's still on the throne. He's still adding to his church. Our salvation is near and closer than when we first believed. And we're to be watching, looking up. Because he can come at any minute. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for your grace and goodness. And we pray, Lord, that your word would be hidden in our heart that we might not sin against you. But thank you for every person here, Lord. Pray for those over the internet or the radio. And we pray that you would just speak to their hearts if someone doesn't know you. That they would call upon your name to be saved, to be forgiven. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. God has brought you here to be saved. Christ died for you. He's the only one that can forgive you, forgive you and get you into heaven by his grace. If this is your desire, then it's called repentance. This is a very simple prayer of repentance to ask Christ to forgive you, to make you his child. Right where you sit, you can say it, and he's going to forgive you and save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.